Hey everyone, if you like true crime stories mixed with a bit of sarcasm and personal opinion, then come check us out. We are Beth and Christy from Crimes and Closets. We tell each other stories of real crimes as we hide in our closets, 850 miles apart, from our children and the world with drinks in hand. So if that sounds fun to you, come join us in our closets every Monday. And always remember, the world is scary, people suck, hide in your closets. This is a Scream Queen production. Jen Carpenter. Happy True Crime Tuesday. Today's episode is a wild one. Almost kind of like Florida man wild. You know, if we're not careful, they're going to switch the phrase from Florida man to Michigan man. I'm <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, but I'm also pretty fucking serious. If these walls could talk. It's a phrase we've heard a thousand times over. In every cliche crime so, so, yeah, we're already going to do it. We're already going to do it. Because you know why? It's 8 a.m. on a Thursday morning. These fucking birds have woken me up at about 6 o'clock. Thank you, springtime. And I'm tired. Okay, well, let's try that again. If these walls could talk. It's a phrase we've heard a thousand times over in every cliche crime show ever. Uh, you know, I picture like a detective in a trench coat with a cigar hanging out of his mouth, looking at all the blood and the carnage, just going like, if these walls could talk. Okay, sorry, I am not a voice actor and I'm <laughs> going to try to be one. But what if walls could talk? Or not walls necessarily, but other things inside a house where a crime has occurred that you might not consider. Today's case is about just such a situation where an unlikely witness emerged to crack a cold case in a manner so shocking it made headlines around the globe. Picture it, Sand Lake, Michigan, 2015. Having a hard time picturing a place called Sand Lake? Well... Spoiler alert, there's sand, and there's a lake, and that's about it. Uh, uh, There are actually only about 500 people in the village of Sand Lake, so it's a very, very small community. It's located on the west side of the state, kind of right between Grand Rapids and White Cloud, which we've visited White Cloud a couple times now on the podcast, most notably in the Dudgeon Swamp episode. Sand Lake is where high school sweethearts Marty and Glenna Durham built a life together, finding their way back to one another after years apart. It's also where they suffered a life-altering tragedy, one that would link them to one of the strangest crimes the Mitten has ever seen. Martin Marty Durham was born in Grand Rapids, Michigan on March 1st, 1969 to Lillian and Charles Durham. He was described as an all-American guy who had a wicked sense of humor and a passion for hunting and fishing. We'll just call him Michigan Man. Uh, When he was 16, Marty met 17-year-old Glenna Johnson, a member of the local Ojibwa tribe. I know I'm saying that wrong. I'm really sorry. I should be able to pronounce such terms better, but I don't, and I can't. I just, I'm sorry. I suck. Glenna was the middle of three children, born to a teenage mother. She was described by her family as a natural-born caretaker. Glenna and Marty kind of ran with the same crew of friends in Grand Rapids, and uh, so they knew a lot of the same people. Their first date seemed innocent enough. They went to a movie. Things moved fast, though, because by the time young Marty returned home that night, 
he was no longer a virgin. While friends thought Glenna and Marty made a good couple, things didn't last. For one, because they were teenagers. Uh, For two, because Glenna was freaking married. At 17, she was married to a man by the name of Bob Norman, a family friend five years her senior. After her affair with Marty ended, Glenna went on to have two children with her husband, Bob, Laura and Eric. For many years, Glenna was a stay-at-home mother who was said to be loving and devoted to her children. So she kind of went her own way, uh, and Marty went his own way. When he was 19, he met and fell in love with a 14-year-old girl he met at a house party. Marty, come on now. Uh, Her name now is Christina Keller, but I think that that's a married name, so I'm not sure what her last name was when she was 14. Being that Christina was a child, she wasn't super into this 19-year-old man who declared on the night he met her that he was going to marry her, but she eventually warmed up to him, and soon the two were inseparable. By the time she was 16, Christina was pregnant with the couple's first child, a son they named Justin. The two were married in 1991 when Marty was 22, so Christina would have been like 17, 18, and they had their second son, Jason, two years after their first, and then their daughter, Jessica, 11 months after that. So by the time she was 19, Christina Durham was a married mother of three. Holy shit, that's a lot. I was an unmarried mother of one at that age, and I know how hard that was. I can't imagine three at that age. Wild, wild. Hats off to you, ma'am. While the Durhams were doing okay for themselves, one of the biggest conflicts in Marty and Christina's relationship was that he preferred hunting and fishing to working and earning, and they argued about his priorities regularly. So when Marty landed a factory job at a company called Steelcase in 1995, Christina was very much looking forward to stability for her young family. But Just 10 days after Marty's first day on the job, tragedy struck. In the early morning hours of February 16, 1995, Marty was on his way home from work when a truck ran a red light going 60 miles per hour and hit Marty's car with such force that the truck actually, like, hit the car and went up and over it. So the impact of broadsiding another vehicle wasn't enough to stop the truck. It tried to go through his car and landed pretty much on top of it. Marty was clinically dead for about five minutes. He had a closed head frontal lobe injury. His jaw was literally split in half. His pelvis was shattered. His ribs and his arm on the left side were broken. His left eye socket was shattered. His lungs were punctured. His heart was bruised. His gallbladder was so damaged it had to be removed. Basically, the entire left side of his body was crushed. He was left in a coma in critical condition for several weeks. When he woke up, he had lost a large and significant part of his memory. Uh, The most significant part of his memory because he didn't remember his wife or his children at all. How heartbreaking that must have been for the family. Like, I just, I cannot even imagine Though he slowly recovered after months in the hospital and years in physical therapy, Marty was never the same. He'd developed a temper, and he had a tendency to be vindictive and controlling. At the same time, Christina's feelings toward Marty had changed. She had been his caregiver for so long, serving in more of a motherly role than a wifely role to him. And remember, she was also still very, very young, uh, that she found intimacy difficult She was no longer in love with her husband. She loved him to death, but she was not in love with him anymore. So, five years after the accident, in 2000, the couple divorced. In 2001, Marty used what was left of his settlement money from the accident, along with a bank loan, to purchase a small home on a large piece of property in Nuevo County's Sand Lake, about an hour-plus north of Grand Rapids, where he was from. He took his sons, Justin and Jason, and the family's pet parrot, Bud, with him, and then his daughter, Jessica, stayed with Christina. That same year, Marty reconnected with his high school sweetheart, Glenna. The way they reconnected, though, was not exactly the stuff of fairy tales. 
Glenna's, it was like the stuff of a Jerry Springer episode, essentially. Glenna's 15-year-old daughter went to the home of Marty's sister. So she had gone to school with Marty's nieces and nephews. She kind of knew them, so she went to them first. And she shows up on the door and she says, Hey, so my whole life growing up, my mom's been telling me that Marty might be my dad. Can we figure that out, please? (laughs) So they have a DNA test done. It proves that Marty is not her dad. Uh, The father that raised her, Bob Norman, Glenna's husband, was in fact her biological father. But Glenna was now back on Marty's radar at a time when he was vulnerable and lonely. Marty's sister recalled in an interview that the first time she met Glenna, she saw a tattoo on Glenna's hand that said, Marty. It was not a fresh tattoo at all. Um, So she had had another man's name on her hand her entire 10 plus, 15 plus year marriage. (laughs) So weird. Uh, yeah, I don't, okay. So what had kind of just been like a teenage tryst to Marty, his first, a good story to tell his friends before he went on to meet the love of his life, Christina, the mother of his children. It was much more to Glenna, clearly, clearly. So just a couple of months after she and Marty reconnected, Glenna made the decision to abandon her children and her husband. Her children were still in school in Grand Rapids, and she moved to Sand Lake so she could be with Marty. So in 2001, Marty would have been 32, Glenna would have been 33. The two were inseparable. They went hunting together, even though Glenna didn't hunt. She would sit in the car reading for hours while Marty sat in the woods waiting for an opportunity to kill something. Pure Michigan. Imagine for a second abandoning your family, leaving your children, and moving an hour and a half away just so you could sit in a car reading for hours on end while the man you were obsessed with hunted in the woods. There's a word for that, and the word is trash. Trash. Anyway, Marty and Glenna were on and popping. Husbands and parental responsibilities be damned. Like I said, they hunted together, kind of. They went to the casinos together a lot. Glenna loved going to the casinos. After a few years, Glenna actually divorced her husband, Bob, and at that point, she and Marty made it official, and they got married at the Nuevo County Courthouse. Glenna then made it extra official and got a tattoo on her shoulder that said, Property of Master D for Durham, her new last name, so... Yeah, she having Marty's name on her hand for decades that they weren't together wasn't enough. Now she had one on her shoulder, too, that said property of Master D. If you can't tell, Glenna and I, we would not have been friends. She does not sound like the coolest to me at all. Like, at, at, at all. Anyway, as the years passed, Marty's injuries from the accident got harder for him to overcome, Uh, As happens as we get older, all of our old wounds start to reopen themselves and manifest in new ways because getting old is the worst. Especially for him, it was the traumatic brain injury or the TBI, which caused memory loss and cognitive issues. Marty was unable to work a traditional job, and he'd already sunk all of his settlement money into the house that he purchased when he divorced Christina. So he and Glenna lived on the $1,100 a month that he got in disability payments and the $3,100 that Glenna got from the state to take care of him. They also had a little side business, which was not exactly legal. Marty had prescriptions for a number of narcotics and opioids for his various injuries. He was able to maintain reasonable comfort levels on a minimum, minimum, minimal pill regimen Sorry. Uh, So he and Glenna sold the rest of his pills, which is hella illegal, of course. They made about $800 a month selling most of the opioids to a Native American tribe in the UP that would drive down to Sand Lake and often meet with the Durhams at their house. Sounds like a solid plan. No, it doesn't. 
So all of this brings us back to 2015 and the small, well-kept ranch at 9242 East 128th Street in Sand Lake, Michigan. Marty's 46, Glenn is 47. Their kids by this point are all grown. They've got grandchildren. They're hunting, gambling, contributing to the country's opioid crisis. They're living on disability. Neither of them works. Marty can't work. Glenna just doesn't. Uh, But Marty keeps himself busy by doing yard work for himself and the neighbors. They all lived in the country, so they had these huge yards. He had a riding mower. He would mow his yard, the neighbor's yards. He would plow everybody's driveways in the winter. Just very, very friendly and neighborly. The Durhams were known to be so neighborly that they actually hosted a pig roast every year for the entire neighborhood. Speaking of neighbors, which is apparently my word of the day, I feel like I'm saying it a whole lot all of the sudden here. Some of Marty and Glenna's closest friends were their neighbors across the street, Keith and Connie Ream. The two couples were in near constant contact, texts, phone calls, visits. One way or another, they spoke daily, usually several times a day. May 11th, 2015 was a Monday. There'd been a rainstorm earlier in the day, but after the sun came out and dried up all the rain, Marty mowed his big ol' yard and then rode across the street and mowed the Reem's big ol' yard as well. After the mowing was done, he and Glenna hung out with Connie and Keith for about an hour before returning home around 9 p.m. The next morning, just before 8.30, Keith texted Marty to ask how he was feeling. Marty didn't respond. Throughout the day, Keith called and he texted, nothing. This was unusual. So that night, which would have been the evening of May 12th, Connie went over to the Durham's house and she knocked on the door. She could hear the dog barking inside, but nobody answered and the door was locked. So she called Glenna. She texted Glenna several times. She got no reply. Keith actually sent Glenna a text jokingly that said, what have you done with Marty? The next day was Wednesday, May 13th. At 7.30 in the morning, on her way to work, Connie went back over to the Durham house. She knocks on the door again. Again, there's no answer, just Shelby the dog barking inside. The door is still locked. Um, So she goes to work, and she's calling and texting Glenna throughout the day. And Keith is still trying to get a hold of Marty, and nothing. No response from either of them. So that day, Connie comes home from work. It's about 4.30, and she goes to the door. She knocks again. There's no answer. Shelby's barking inside. Uh, She turns the door handle, and now it's unlocked. Immediately upon entering the home, Connie realizes something's wrong. The Durhams kept a neat and tidy home, but their living room was completely trashed. There were pillows and trash strewn about, papers all over the floor, stains on the furniture and the floor. There's a lamp knocked over and shattered. So something bad has happened in the Durham household. That's very clear. Connie follows a barking Shelby back to the Durham's bedroom. She saw Glenna first, sitting on the floor in a prone position at the end of the bed in a pool of blood, almost completely covered by a blanket. Nearby was Marty. Uh, He was wearing only his underwear, lying on the floor, covered in blood. Because this was a small neighborhood where everyone saw and heard everything that was going on, Connie was aware that there were firefighters just down the street fighting a garage fire. So she'd probably, she was on her way home from work as all of this happened. So she probably passed by him, you know, on her way home from work, stopped at the Durham's house. And so when she sees that there's bodies on the floor, that Glenna and Marty are lying on their bedroom floor covered in blood, she runs to the scene of the fire, tells officials, you got to get over here. Something awful has happened. So the firefighters race to the scene. They quickly assess the situation, and they determined that there was no aid to be rendered. They were only contaminating the scene of a double murder or possibly, you know, a murder-suicide. Either way, they needed to get out of there before they ruined any of the evidence. So firefighters go back outside, and from outside the Durham house, a firefighter calls the Michigan State Police and says, there's two bodies on the floor, DOA. There's shells on the bed and blood all over. Police rushed to the house, and they began to secure the scene. 
About an hour after the bodies were discovered, officers were in the bedroom, you know, processing the scene when one of them thought that he saw Glenna's chest move. Was she breathing? He bent down to where she was lying on the floor to check her pulse, and her eyes flew open. She yelled, What are you doing? Marty! A moment later, the call for paramedics, and probably a call for fresh underwear, went out. The officer shouted into his little walkie-talkie, One in here is not dead. Lena Durham was rushed to the hospital with two gunshot wounds to the head, both of them behind her right ear. She was alive, but she was in critical condition. There was no miracle to be had for Marty Durham, though. He had been shot five times in the chest, back, arm, and he had already been dead for an extended period of time before he was found. Police located the murder weapon, a Ruger single-six revolver, out in the living room under the love seat. The gun belonged to Marty's father and was being stored at the Durham home for safekeeping. Speaking of safe, the Durhams had a safe, one that they were known to keep thousands of dollars of cash in. But there was no money found when police searched it during their investigation. While doctors rushed to save Glenna's life after telling her family not to be too optimistic, officials back at the crime scene figured they were looking at a botched home invasion or a drug deal gone wrong. But things were about to get real weird. The day after the bodies were found, officials allowed Marty Durham's three children, all in their 20s now, into the house to get poor Bud the parrot out, because remember, Marty had his pet parrot. Some reports that I read said that they were allowed inside to clean, but the day after the discovery of a murder scene seems a little early to allow a cleanup, doesn't it? I don't know, maybe not. What do I know? I just work here. Uh, Whatever the pretense was, the kids were in the house alone. Jessica was sifting through a pile of paperwork that was strewn about, and she found a manila envelope addressed to Glenna's mother. Inside the envelope were three letters, all in Glenna's handwriting. The two letters to Glenna's children, Laura and Eric, were identical. So there were two separate letters, one addressed to each of them, but the content was identical. Those letters both read, I'm sorry, but I love you, and so sorry I've been a disappointment to you these last 12 years or so. Please forgive me. You're one of the best things I ever did. Love, Mom. The third letter was addressed to Glenna's ex-husband, Bob. His letter said, I'm so sorry I messed up. Please be there for our two beautiful children and grandkids as you have been. Love, Glenna. Marty Durham's kids understandably believed these to be suicide notes. Had Glenna killed Marty and tried to kill herself? Was this a murder-suicide where only the murder part took? Why would Glenna want to kill herself and her husband? The possible answer to that question lay nearby also. In the drawer of Glenna's nightstand, Marty's kids found a ripped-up foreclosure notice for Marty's house. A few weeks prior, Marty's mother had called to tell him that she saw a notice of sheriff's sale for his house in the newspaper, which is one of the final steps of the foreclosure process. So when Marty questioned Glenna, she said a mistake had been made. They must have put the wrong address in. She would call the mortgage company and she was going to take care of it. But a few days later, a notice of that same... I cannot talk today. Wait, I cannot talk today. I cannot talk ever. We know this. I don't know what I'm even trying to pretend right now. I'm sorry. I can't speak, and I'm a podcast host. It's not a good combination. Thank you for sticking through it with me. Anyhow, a few days after the sheriff's sale was published in the paper, officials came out and nailed a copy of the sheriff's sale to the Durham's front door. How fucking embarrassing. Like, I know that's the process. I know that's how it goes, but that's really, really embarrassing. And according to court filings, the foreclosure was very real. The Durhams were $5,000 behind on their mortgage, which they still owed about $48,000 on. Uh, It hadn't been paid in about a year. The sheriff's sale was scheduled for May 12th, which was the day after the Durhams were last seen alive 
and the day before their bodies were discovered. And this wasn't the first time that the couple had had money problems. A finance company once showed up and tried to repossess one of their vehicles after Glenna failed to make the payments. Marty only found out that his credit had completely tanked when he tried to take out a loan to purchase a new vehicle. They owed the IRS money. They owed tons of money in medical bills. But why? Between Marty's disability, Glenna's caretaker payments, and their opioid slanging, they made about $5,000 a month, which is not bad for a couple that lives simply in a small house in the country, right? Well, as it turned out, Glenna had a bit of a gambling problem. She spent hundreds of dollars a week on lottery tickets, and she dropped thousands every time she went to the casino, which was often. In 2010 alone, she spent $75,000 gambling. $75,000. Girl. Girl. But wait, there's more. Trying to nail the timeline of the shootings down was tricky. The Durhams were last seen on May 11th at 9 p.m., and they were found at 4.30 p.m. on May 13th. So that's like a 43-and-a-half-hour window during which the shootings took place. Marty Durham ignored his first text message at 8.30 in the morning on May 12th. So if we assume that he ignored the message because he was already dead, then that narrows down the window of the shooting to less than 12 hours, sometime between 9 p.m. on May 11th and 8.30 a.m. on May 12th. But there was activity on Glenna's phone the following morning, a full day later, on May 13th. Between 3.32 a.m. and 4.48 a.m. on the 13th, the day the bodies were found, Glenna's phone was used to look up information on Ruger revolvers. Specifically, someone was looking for an instruction manual for the Ruger Single Six, which was the murder weapon. It was the gun that was used to kill Marty and shoot Glenna. Shortly after the Ruger website was accessed the last time, a text was sent to Glenna's mom that said, Love you. Sorry. And someone had to be in the house after 7.30 a.m. that day on the 13th because the door was locked the first time Connie went to the house on her way to work at 7.30 in the morning, and then it was unlocked when she went back at 4.30. Also, neighbors reported hearing gunshots in the early morning hours of May 13th, but didn't report having heard anything on the morning of May 12th. So this is a pretty big window now because... We've got some sort of activity going on in the house up until right before the bodies are found. So this is, this is confusing. An examination of the crime scene resulted in even more questions. Authorities found Glenna lying on her bedroom floor, covered in a blanket. But Connie, who had been in the house just minutes before officials, said that Glenna was definitely in a sitting position at the end of the bed. And the bloodstains found in the living room suggested that Glenna hadn't been shot in the bedroom at all. Uh, Marty definitely had. He'd been shot, died all in the same place. But Glenna had been shot in the living room. They believed that she was sitting in a chair near where the gun was later found when a pillow was held to her head and two shots were fired. So there were bullet holes in the pillow. There were bloodstains on the chair. The murder weapon was nearby. Uh, So they thought that that's where she had actually been shot and then moved to the bedroom. So, I mean, it seems like it was pretty clear that Marty was killed sometime on the night of the 11th. He was last seen by his neighbors, the Reams, at 9 p.m. that night, and he last accessed his phone about a half hour later at 9.30 to search for lawnmowers. And after that, radio silence. If someone broke into the house and shot him and Glenna on the night of the 11th, then who was on Glenna's phone a full 24-plus hours later, the morning of the 13th, searching for an online manual for the murder weapon and texting her mother a goodbye message? Who fired the shots that the neighbors heard on the morning of the 13th? Who moved Glenna's body from a sitting-to-laying position on the afternoon of the 13th in those few minutes between when Connie saw her and when the firefighters entered the house just after 4.30? I mean, it was Glenna, right? (laughs) It had to be. Logically, the only thing that makes sense is that Glenna killed Marty on the night of the 11th, 
then spent the next day and a half in the house writing suicide notes, trying to make it look like a break-in, saying her goodbyes, then shot herself in an attempt to take her own life on the morning of the 13th, right? But if that's true, and this was a murder, an attempted suicide, how, after shooting herself in the head, not once, but twice, did Glenna make it from the living room all the way to the bedroom beside her husband? And where was the money that went missing from the safe? They had thousands of dollars in their safe that was not there and was not accounted for. As authorities pondered these questions and so many more, Glenna spent a month in a medically induced coma at Butterworth Hospital in Grand Rapids. When she awoke, she was not able to help solve the mystery. She had no memory of the shooting or the days leading up to it. Her last memory was from earlier that week of getting a flu shot and buying gifts for Mother's Day. So the question remained, was Glenna Durham a cold-blooded murderer or the victim of a violent attack that left her beloved husband dead? The answer would not come for another year and from the most unlikely of sources. And when I say unlikely, I mean, what? Remember where this story started with talking walls? Well, walls don't talk, but parrots sure the fuck do. About a month after Marty's murder, his poor, traumatized parrot bud began to display some odd behavior at his new home, the home of Marty's first wife, Christina, which Christina was Bud's original owner. She'd raised him since right after he hatched, but Marty took him out of spite in the divorce. So after Marty's death, little Bud was returned to his mama. Bud is an African gray parrot, which is known for being one of the most skilled species of parrots in the fields of talking and mimicking. And Bud, whose lifespan is 40 to 60 years, so I wasn't able to confirm this. I'm just going to go ahead and say he's still alive because I need to believe that. Uh, I'm sure that he is. I'm sure I would have found something if he wasn't. But anyway, Bud loved to mimic people. He often mimicked the sounds of just kind of Marty's everyday life. He would do a little scene where he was Marty playing with the dog, Shelby. So in kind of a deeper, manly voice, Bud would say, here, Shelby, then make a squeaking sound, like the sound of a toy, then, he, you know, good girl, things like that. So he played out full scenes in different voices and everything. Creepy to me. Birds actually creep me out. I don't know what it is about them, but birds that can talk terrify me. Like, I think it's really cool, but it also scares me a lot. Anyway. Not all of the scenes that Bud reenacted were cute ones. Soon after being returned to Christina, he began replaying a fight in two very different, distinct voices, one high-pitched and feminine, the other deep and masculine, one that sounded like Glenna and one that sounded like Marty. The voices were fighting, lots of fuck yous, shut the fuck up, fuck you, white boy, fuck you, Glenna, shut up. Lots of that. But the argument always ended the same way. With the man's voice saying, No. No. Don't fucking shoot. Don't shoot. Poor Bud mimicked this scene over and over, always ending with Marty's voice saying the words, Don't fucking shoot. One day, Christina managed to get the scene on video. She shared it with Marty's sister, but she didn't take it to police because she thought that they would think that she was crazy. A parrot as a murder witness. Like, there's no fucking way, right? Uh, So this kind of was just a thing that the family had, but the police didn't. As the one-year anniversary of Marty's murder was approaching and still no arrests had been made, his family gave an interview to a local news station. During the interview, Marty's mother mentioned the video of Bud the Parrot to the reporter, who asked to see it. By that evening, the video of Bud reenacting his owner's final moments was everywhere. We're talking worldwide. Three weeks later, Glenna was arrested and charged with first-degree murder. Now, 
Real talk, a parrot's testimony cannot be used as evidence in a murder trial, although quite a bit of time was spent debating this in the media. Bud the parrot didn't solve the case, but he was a witness to Marty Durham's murder and his recreation of the crime brought so much attention to the case that authorities dug back in, built their case, and were finally able to press charges. Those two sticking points that kind of pointed outside the home, the missing cash from the safe and the impossibility of Glenna getting herself from the living room to the bedroom after shooting herself twice in the head, explanations for those were actually fairly simple. The money? Marty's kids took it. The day after their dad's body was found, when they were allowed back into the house to get Bud, they took the cash out of Marty's safe and didn't tell authorities. Dumb. Yeah, a little, but whatever. They were grieving. People do dumb shit when they're grieving. As for how Glenna got from the living room chair where she was shot to the bedroom, a neurologist testified that her injuries actually weren't that severe and that it was absolutely possible that she was up and moving around after she was shot. So, like, seriously think about that for a minute. She was completely conscious, allegedly, allegedly, She could have been, possibly, realistically, completely conscious, wandering around the house after shooting herself in the head twice, that at one point she got up and unlocked the door so that Connie could get in, so she heard Connie coming to the house and knew that she wasn't coming in because the door was locked, so she managed to get the door unlocked so that someone could get in. She staged herself in this kind of slumped-over sitting position at the end of the bed. And when Connie came in and saw her and ran out of the house, she decided that was maybe, like, too uncomfortable or something. So she laid down and restaged the scene. And that she planned that dramatic moment where her eyes flew open and she screamed as soon as somebody touched her. I seriously can't. Like, it just turns my blood cold. Fear the living indeed. Fuck. Seriously. So that bitch, Glenna Durham, was found guilty of first-degree premeditated murder and sentenced to life in prison. Yay. Whether she planned the murder-suicide because of her gambling debts and the foreclosure or whether she killed Marty in a fit of rage and then tried to kill herself as a result, that part remains to be seen. Her lawyer is balls deep into the appeals process, but hopefully all the appeals will be denied and this killer will stay locked away where she fucking belongs. Marty Durham is survived by his children and his grandchildren, including his daughter Jessica's first child, a son who was born the day before his grandfather's funeral and whose middle name is Martin. And that is the story of Michigan's most unlikely murder witness, Bud the Parrot. Only in Michigan, I swear. My sources for today's episode were the ID Channel show Till Death Do Us Part, Season 1, Episode 1, Episode 38 of the podcast The Minds of Madness, and an article from the Detroit News with the best title I've ever read, The parrot, the psychic, and the accused murderess. You guys know I love the word murderess, and we don't see it used anymore, but it was used in this article, and I'm here for it. Thank you for coming to my dead talk. And now, it's time for some liquid cheese. You don't need it. It adds absolutely no value to your day, or your life, at all. But here it is anyway. Enjoy the shit. I am going to run out of true crime-themed topics for these liquid cheeses real soon. This actually might be my last one unless I can pull another one from the memory bake. Bake? Bank. Memory bank. Memory bake. My memory is baked. That's probably more, more accurate. Anyway, so this one was inspired by a post that I saw going around recently that said, What was the incident? at your high school. So it's just like one of those black background, white letters, big attention grabby. I've seen, I saw it in a couple groups, but the one where I interacted was, it was posted in a group that a lot of my high school classmates are in. And everyone that was in school in the same time frame I was, we all immediately 
recalled the same incident, you know, to varying degrees and from different perspectives, of course. Ours was not at all a fun one. There were some that were like hilarious about pigs roaming the halls of the high school and, you know, real saved by the bell type pranks and things like that. But I went to Lansing's Sexton High School baby and there was none of that there. So this was my senior year. My senior year was a little odd. Um, I was super over high school, as I'm sure most seniors are. They call senioritis, right? And I was the co-editor-in-chief of the school newspaper. Is that shocking? No. And that was pretty much all I did. I had all of my required credits. I had a co-op program in the afternoon, which the idea behind it was you went to school in the morning and then you were able to work at your job in the afternoon and you got credits for that. But the way the program actually worked was as long as you had a job and were working X amount of hours and could prove it, you could do the co-op for the second half of the day and you didn't actually have to be at the job during the school hours, if that makes sense. So like, as long as I was working 20 hours a week, it didn't matter what those hours were. So realistically, I only had school in the morning, which is three classes. My first hour was just journalism, basically just a throwaway class and extra time for me to work on the newspaper. My second hour was uh, a composition class, like my last required required credit that I needed. And then my third hour was newspaper. So I really kind of just showed up when I wanted, did whatever work I had to do for the newspaper that day and left. I wasn't like scheduled classes here, there, everywhere. So I was always late. That's the point. I'm still always late for everything, but this was my reason that I was always late for high school. And the student parking lot was off to the side of the building. It was dark that morning. I remember it was still very dark. School started pretty early. And when I pulled into the parking lot, I saw an ambulance, like the flashing lights of an ambulance, and they were up near the student door. So the door that, you know, we go in after we park in the student parking lot. And I, you know, like, of course I noticed it, um, but I didn't think a lot of it. We had a lot of pregnant students, and so there were medical emergencies. We had a lot of elderly teachers that had, you know, their medical problems, heart attacks, things like that. It was not uncommon to see an ambulance at the school and people would get all worked up, you know, what happened, what happened, and it was never anything you know, hugely dramatic or juicy. So I wasn't super put off by seeing the ambulance at the school. I went on about my merry way. And as I pulled the door open to enter the building, just like the memory, the moment and the memory, it's all kind of like in this vacuum. It was just the strangest like, All of these things were happening at once, and it was very hard to see and determine and figure out what was going on. So I opened the door, and there is a stretcher flying at me, paramedics shoving a stretcher through the hall right at me. So I pull the door open, and I hold the door for them as they wheel it past me. And I hear one of them say, you doing all right, bud? Are you okay? And this thumb goes up. And I look down, and there is a kid. I mean, I was a kid, but a kid about my age, in my age range, on the stretcher, covered in blood. There's blood everywhere. And I can see his motherfucking molars in his mouth. His face was split open all the way back so that you could see his back teeth literally through the side of his face. It's seven o'clock in the morning. I'm not even awake yet. And I'm looking at someone's molars because their face has been gashed all the way open. So the shock hits, it's immediate, right? Like, what the fuck is this? What is going on? Uh, They're gone, they're out the door. I step into the hall and I'm just like, everything is slow motion and far away, like what's going on? And I see a security guard yelling. He's yelling, move, move, get out of the hall, move. And I look around and people are kind of like scattering in all directions. And that's when I notice the blood 
there is blood everywhere, on the lacquers, on the walls, on the floor. I look down, and I'm standing in blood. So there's a bathroom not too far from where I'm standing, so I run to the bathroom. There's a girl in the bathroom throwing up. Um, There's someone crying. There's another girl yelling about, um, you know, she's got blood all over her shoes. We all had blood all over our shoes at this point. And, like, what the fuck? (laughs) What the fuck? That was literally all I could think, and that's all I can think now, remembering this awful, awful scene. So what happened was there was a fight in the main foyer in the morning before school started. Some kids that didn't even go to the school came up there to fight a student, and one of them went to punch him in the face, and the victim... I, I didn't know him, so I'm not going to speak to his name or anything like that. I didn't know him at all. Um, he didn't realize that this kid had a box cutter um, squeezed between his fingers. So when he punched him, it sliced his face from the corner of his mouth almost all the way back to his ear, all the way clean through. And As often happens when someone's severely injured, I talked about this on the episode where I was stabbed with the ice skate, you don't always realize what's happening at first, and he didn't realize that he'd been cut. So he went after him, and he was like shaking his head and running up and down the halls and screaming as his face is sliced all the way open and profusely gushing blood. So that's why there was so much blood everywhere. So... um. (laughs) He was taken to the hospital. You know, he was okay. I'm sure he's got a scar to this day. The kids that came up and slashed him at 7 o'clock in the morning in the school's foyer were arrested. It was, yeah, but it was, was, that was our incident. That was the big incident. There were a couple other smaller ones, dangerous, scary. There was one, uh, a bank was robbed nearby, and the bank robbers escaped into our school and went and hid, like, up in our bell tower. (laughs) I don't know. So there were some, but that was definitely the biggest. That was the most traumatizing for me. And I sure as shit went right back home that day. No school for Jen when she sees someone's molars at seven o'clock in the morning through the side of their face. No school for Jen. So here's the question that I will post in the So Dead discussion group on Facebook for the liquid cheese. Um, What was the incident at your high school? It can be funny. Please let some of them be funny. It can be awful like mine. Just make it true. No creepypasta bullshit. Tell real stories. Yeah, so that's That's that. Uh, Before I let you go today, I do want to share a little bit of exciting news with you. For those of you that haven't seen it yet on social media, uh, Dead Time Stories, my bookstore, my true crime-themed bookstore that I have is moving. We have our own storefront in Lansing's Rio Town now. So the address, the new address for the shop is 1132 South Washington in Lansing's Rio Town. If you're not familiar, the zip code is 48910. And Rio Town is amazing. First of all, I'm from the south side of Lansing, so it's very much like a coming home type situation for me. I'm really excited about Rio Town is where I had some of my best moments in the shitty ass year that was 2020. Uh, it's where Danny and I did our last live show together at the Robin Theater right before the pandemic hit. It's where I filmed the 2020 episode that summer. So lots of good memories and good vibes about Rio Town. I've got lots of friends in the area. So many cool restaurants and shops. There's Good Truck and Diner, Sleepwalker, the Rio Town Pub, Michigan's Blue Owl Coffee, uh, Vintage Junkies. I'm in a little strip with several female-owned businesses. I think there's four of us right in a row. There's going to be my bookshop on the end. I'm next door to a salon that's owned by a woman. Next door to that is a jewelry store that's owned by a woman. And then next door to that is another new business that's opening, which is it's called the Clean Refillery, which is um, basically a zero-waste store where you can buy the things to go to a zero-waste lifestyle. 
I'm I'm not a zero. I'm a waster, so I don't know a lot about it. But it sounds really cool. And I'm definitely, you know, I have no excuse now, right, to not educate myself. I'm going to be three doors down from, three doors down. Isn't that a band? I'm going to be three doors down from them every day. So, yeah. Point being, Rio Town's amazing. Super excited about the new storefront. Opens March 27th. So March 27th is the grand opening ribbon cutting ceremony at 1045. And then we'll be open until seven that night. The hours are going to kind of, I'm going to tweak them here and there because I just don't know what the flow of people is like in Rio town. So initially we'll be open Wednesday through Saturday, 11 to seven, and then Sunday, 11 to five closed on Mondays and Tuesdays. My goal is to get it to seven days a week. Uh, but I am just, I'm one person, so <laughs> we, we got to get it figured out first. Um, so the goal is seven days a week at some point, you know, we may open a little later or close a little earlier, just depending on how busy traffic is in the area. We'll figure that all out. So make sure you follow Dead Time Stories on Facebook and Instagram or check the website which I'm just now reminding myself is the one thing I haven't updated yet. Um, check the website, deadtimestories517.com for hours and all of that stuff. But you have to come check it out. It's going to be so amazing, and I'm so excited. All right, that's it for today. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to So Dead wherever you listen, and make sure you're following So Dead on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you'd like to support the show, you can check out the Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash so dead podcast. There's lots of really cool, fun stuff going on there. Uh, there's also the So Dead Podcast discussion group on Facebook. That's where we do the public liquid cheese posts. And that's really actually becoming kind of like a cool little community. I don't have to really police it. I don't have to remove a lot of people or delete a lot of things. It's all about true crime and weird Michigan history and tacos. And people are posting, you know, interesting articles and things every day, funny memes. We all love a good meme. Um, so, yeah, check that out if you're on Facebook. <sighs> a new episode of So Dead is coming your way in a couple of weeks. Until then, stay safe, stay sane, and keep shining, you magnificent what the fucks.